0: So I don't know if you all knew this or not, but what you just uh, experienced was Scripture put to music right there. It is beautiful when the Word of God is being sung in praise back to our Heavenly Father. And it's wonderful whenever God's people are using their gifts, their voices, and their talents in the worship of our King. So uh, I enjoyed every second of that. I found myself over there smiling. Like, I don't know if I've ever smiled before. It was beautiful. So, uh, Seth, thank you for taking all those pointers I gave you about how to lead the choir on that, man. You all did great. I appreciate it. All right. So, with a little bit of humor to loosen everybody up, let's talk about what we're getting into this morning. Today, we are talking about temptation. Amen. I appreciate your enthusiasm on that because uh, this is not necessarily what you would call a fun topic it is not one of those topics that we normally discuss in polite company but it is an issue that we all face and depending upon how we respond to temptation it will impact our relationship with god it impacts our relationship with other people it impacts the freedom that we enjoy it impacts even the way we see ourselves So as weird as it might be for us to just jump in on this thing and start talking about temptation and pulling it out, we're just going to go ahead and pull the Band-Aid off and get right in, all right? (laughs) So this last week, I took a little bit of time, and I looked up different definitions, biblical definitions, Christian definitions for the idea of temptation. And sadly, I just found myself very confused there's a lot of information that is out there there's a lot of ideas about what temptation is and whether or not it is coming from a commentary or it is a christian book let me just say there's a lot of information that is out there and this is just me but i like my definitions to be biblically accurate and simple that that's just me that's how i like them and i found some definitions are biblically accurate and confusing and I found some of them that are simple and not biblically accurate so I kind of like that both and approach I like them biblically accurate and I also like them to be simple and there was one that I came across that absolutely fit that criteria it is temptation is anything that influences you to disobey God biblically accurate and simple I like that There was another definition that stood out to me but it was for an entirely different reason here's the definition temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way i'm not going to lie i had to side eye that one for a little while i was like i'm not sure if that is completely accurate or not It was intriguing for sure, but I had to sit with what the writer was saying for a while and kind of continue to read before and after to get the flow of what this writer meant. So my first question when I read that definition is, is all temptation an opportunity to accomplish a good thing? That was the part that was kind of tripping me up on that side. So I began to run it through a number of scenarios, like what if the temptation is to cheat on a test or to lie to a parent Or to have sex outside of marriage. Can we look at any of just those scenarios and view them as an opportunity to accomplish a good thing? Well, the further I read with this particular writer, he was emphasizing the motivation and the desire behind whatever that opportunity might be. And it made a little bit more sense. So, for example, if the underlying motivation or desire is to do well on a test, that's a good thing. It is a good thing to want to do well. But if you're trying to do well by cheating, that is a desire to do a good thing in a bad way. Does that make sense? Okay. Also, if you're trying to please your parents, that's a good thing. But if you're trying to please your parents by lying because telling the truth would displease them, that is a desire to do a good thing but to do it in a bad way. Okay, so when I started to think about it, there's a number of motivations that come behind most of the temptations that we face. For example, temptation is usually birthed out of a motivation for connection, pleasure, fulfillment, belonging, hope, success, freedom, comfort. None of those things in and of themselves are bad. The issue is if it's a good thing that is pursued in a bad way, it can become temptation And lead into sin so the motivation behind temptation is something that I want us to to think deeply about and that's a lot of why I'm setting up a lot of big pieces on the front side I want this to be a message that we not only think deeply about the subject of temptation but more importantly that we think biblically about the topic of temptation I want this to be a time that we understand what temptation is and how temptation works, and where temptation leads, and listen, and that God has made a way for his people to win the battle of temptation. And we got to be clear on that point. God has made a way for his people to win the battle with temptation. Now, in order for us to understand that, I want to set up a couple of other preliminary thoughts. First, temptation is not sin. We know that because Jesus himself was tempted, Mark chapter one, Luke chapter four, and yet he was tempted but without sin, Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. Sin is what happens whenever we mishandle temptation. I also wanna emphasize that God promises to provide a way of escape when we face temptation, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Now here's the part we don't like to hear. Many times his way of escape is to avoid the temptation and the scenario altogether. If you want a reference for that, I will give you one. I just happened to have been studying the topic this last week, here's your reference. It is Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. It's a guideline for avoiding situations that lead to temptation. It says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and here it is, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to live in a state of abiding in him and our identity in him and understanding him and relationship with him. But at the same time, it says we are to make no provision for the flesh. We are not to put ourselves in a position where the flesh can be tantalized and the flesh can be aroused and the flesh can grow up into greater levels of temptation. In other words, the advice here is don't put yourself in a situation that you know it's going to be tempting. Y'all still with me? amen amen i'm gonna have to do a lot of checking on the crowd this morning because this is i said not a comfortable topic now let me give you one final piece to help us understand why temptation is such an issue why it is such a struggle that is it comes back to two main pieces influence of satan and the desires of the flesh and i'm going to show you in scripture where that is as well for just a moment right off to the side in your notes somewhere write down acts chapter 5 and also right off to the side, Luke chapter 22. Acts chapter 5 is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And then Luke chapter 22 is the story of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. If you read both of those stories, there is a very clear link to Satan bringing about a deceptive temptation for both. Now we understand that Satan deceives. and We also understand that Satan wants to influence people to do the wrong thing. But listen, none of us can use the old excuse, the devil made me do it. Because James takes that excuse off the board. And that's what we're going to get into today. He says, each person is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That is, there is something inside of us. And when it talks about lust, there's something in us that resonates with desires, wants, whatever it is that the enemy is offering, otherwise there is no temptation. If there is something in you that is being tempted, it's because there's something in that sinful flesh that still wants something that is in rebellion to God. Victory over the flesh, it comes by walking in the state of repentance, renewing our minds to the truths of God's Word and submitting to the Spirit moment by moment. That's how we win this battle in temptation. So when we fail to do those things, here's the promise that you're going to find in Scripture. Eventually, you will fall into that sin. When we fail to walk in a state of repentance, and here's why that is so important. When you're walking in a state of repentance, you're not letting sin build up in your life. The further you walk in an area of allowing sin to continue to grow and sin to continue to thrive and your mind is in sin and your actions are in sin and your heart is in sin, when you begin to live in that state, it is harder and harder and harder to hear the voice of God saying, come back, come back, come back. And here's the thing, sometimes you get so deep, you think there is no way back. I'm gonna show you in the word, there's a way back. There's hope for those in the gospel. So here's what we find. When we fail to do those things, we eventually yield to temptation and we exchange the fruit of the Spirit for the deeds of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5. So how can we consistently win the battle with temptation? Are there warning signs that we can recognize early on in the process that would help us avoid the temptation that is going to lead to deception and sin? How can we be undivided between our beliefs and our behaviors? All of the answers for those and much more is found right here in the Word of God. I invite you to go with me today, James chapter 1. We will be in verses 12 through 18. I am speaking this morning on the subject of winning the battle with temptation. Winning the battle with temptation. If you say, Paul, I'm not being tempted, either one, you're lying. Or number two, you don't recognize the temptation that is around you right now. This is one of those messages that when I am encouraging young pastors and they're saying, hey, if I've got six, ten messages that I could go through and to prepare in advance, if God opens the door for me to preach, you know, what should I be focused on? What's a topic? You preach on temptation, and here's what I'll tell you. You will hit the crowd every single time. We are always dealing with some type of temptation, and this is one of those texts that helps us to see it from God's perspective. Here's what It says, found in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, take us into your word in depth today. May your spirit pinpoint areas in our life where the truths of your word immediately apply. And God, may we walk in holiness as we submit those things to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the last time we were actually in the book of James was October the 8th of 2022, If you happen to do the numbers in your head real fast, that's over four months ago. I have a hard time remembering what I did last week. So that being said, we need to reset the table a little bit for this book. And I'm going to do it different this time. I want to reset the table visually. So in a moment, there's going to be a number of pieces popping up on the screen. You might want to wait until the very end if you'd like to take a picture because all of it will be on one complete piece at the end. So here's, here's where we're going with this. The book of James confronts the problem of unethical behavior. That is why the book of James is written. That it, Christians were living in a morally and a spiritually corrupt way. They were saying one thing, and yet they were doing something completely different. So James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the problem to unethical behavior is undivided living. That is, Christians need to live with consistency between their beliefs and their behaviors. That is the essence of integrity. That is, what you see is what you get, and what you get is what God desires. Now, for a person to live an undivided life, a life that has consistency and integrity, there's going to be two pieces that are needed. They need wisdom, and they also need spiritual maturity. It is believers who are walking in wisdom, and it is believers who are spiritually mature who can effectively resist temptation, respond obediently to God's word, overcome prejudice, produce good works, and all of the other wonderful things that are mentioned right here in the book of James. Now, according to James chapter 1, wisdom and spiritual maturity are not learned in a classroom setting, rather, they are forged through the trials of life. Just as rough seas make good sailors, So trials make mature Christians. It is in the problems, it's the issues, it's the dysfunction of life that we learn what it looks like to walk out our faith in the right way, right living. So the trials and the tests of our faith, they will produce three things for believers. They produce endurance in believers. It will produce believers who are perfect and complete. And it will produce believers who are lacking in nothing. Now, if you look at those three pieces, do you know what that is? That is the essence of spiritual maturity. That is the result going towards spiritual maturity. But here's the thing about that. All of that's wonderful. It's great to know that your trials have a purpose. It's great to understand God is using them. But here's the thing. Between the trial and spiritual maturity, it takes time. We do not go from lost and in rebellion to God to spiritually mature overnight. It's a process. It takes time. So here's what James encourages people to do in chapter 1. If you don't know what to do in the moment, if you don't understand God's perspective, if you're struggling to see what the next step is going to be, he says, ask God for wisdom, and he will give it to you abundantly and without reproach that is what it looks like that same cycle that same picture that you're seeing up there he's now going to use that and he's going to drop it in scenario after scenario after scenario that every believer is going to face so for example he's going to drop that into resisting temptation dealing with persecution Walking in obedience, producing good works, controlling the tongue, waiting patiently on the Lord, depending on God, having prayer, or living in prayer is our constant state. Like, he's going to take that same paradigm for how it is that we move to maturity, and he's going to say, now let's talk about that when it comes to temptation. That's what we're dealing with this morning. Those are the pieces that lead into our text. So, in verse number 12, he begins with this word, blessed. It's the same word that Jesus used over in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. Blessed, it speaks of a profound inner joy and satisfaction. It is a joy that comes directly from God. In this context, it is given to those who faithfully and patiently endure the trials by the grace of God. He's saying the person who just keeps on walking with God, they're blessed. There is a joy There's a deep inner satisfaction that God alone brings in the context of that trial. He says the one who perseveres under trial is the one who is never losing trust in God. They might not understand. They might not see how it's going to work out. They might be struggling with each of the different parts along the way, but they just keep trusting God. They keep trusting God. They keep trusting God. He says by persevering, that individual becomes approved. They pass the test with their faith intact. Perse- our Perseverance brings God's approval And God's approval brings the crown of life. In a previous message, I addressed those crowns in depth. So now look at verse 13. The terminology here, it shifts from trial to temptation. And if you'll remember in our previous study, end of last year, the word for trials, the Greek word, has a basic meaning of trying, testing, proving, and temptation. It can have positive, negative, or neutral connotations depending upon its context. So in verses 1 through 12, James speaks of trials on the outside. Now, starting in verse 13 through verse 27, he speaks of temptations on the inside. Trials may be tests sent by God. And at the same time, temptations may be a type of trial that is sent by Satan. In both cases, it's the exact same word in Greek. So why is it important that we keep these two words connected together? It's because if we're not careful, the testings on the outside can very quickly turn to temptations on the inside. When the circumstances are hard, it is very easy for a person to start complaining against God, to question God's love for them, And at the same time, to start resisting his will at every step. You're like, God, if you're not going to help me on this situation right now, God, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to resist here. And here's what happens. When a person is in a state of starting to resist God in that way, the enemy is more than happy to offer a type of escape by way of temptation that's going to lead to greater destruction on the other side. You have to be careful when it comes to the trials of life that it is not being used against you in other ways. It's clear from the context here that James is talking about temptation. And he is immediately addressing one of the most common issues that occurs with any temptation and specifically when people succumb to that temptation. You know what he's going to address? Blame blame. Here it is. When people face temptation and they succumb to it, they start to blame other people. They blame the situation. They blame the home they grew up in. They blame their third grade teacher who didn't smile enough at them. They blame low blood sugar. They blame lack of sleep last night. They blame God, they blame their spouse, they blame Satan. In other words, if you can name it, we're going to blame it. (laughs) You can use that, Ken. There you go, man. Take that one with you. The issue is there is an endless list of things that we can blame and say, that's why I'm in this situation right now. But here's what he is going to do. He's going to take the big one right off the top. He's going to say, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. The phrase, let no one say, speaks of rationalizing or justifying to himself. He's very clear. It is incorrect for us to blame God for temptation, and he tells us why. God cannot be tempted by evil. Verse number 13. The nature of evil makes it inherently foreign to God. He has no vulnerability to evil. He is utterly impregnable to its onslaughts. In other words, God and evil exist in two distinct realms that do not meet. Okay, the second piece he's going to say is God does not tempt anyone. We are tempted by our own lust or desires. It is in our fallen disposition, that is, in the flesh. I I keep giving the same definition. The flesh describes the habits, the traits, and the tendencies that we developed while living under the sin nature prior to Christ. When you got saved, he gave you a new nature. The issue is, it's now learning to think according to that new nature in Christ. But here's the thing. If somebody spent 30 years out, uh, I guess, going through and, and indulging fleshly desires, you might get saved today. But here's the thing. Unless God does a providential work immediately in that moment, there's still going to be a struggle with those areas of sin. So if you got somebody who is a drug addict for 30 years and they get saved, praise God, that's a step in the right direction. But here's the thing, that person the next day, they're going to be jonesing again. They're going to be dealing with those cravings that come from that. The issue is they're dealing with the flesh at this point. So what he's saying here is that God is not tempting anyone, but we are tempted by our own fleshly desires. Now look at the word in here. He says carried away. It has a meaning of being dragged away, compelled by an inner desire. It's a hunting term that was used to refer to a baited trap that was designed to lure the animal in. The term enticed is a fishing term. It's almost like he grew up in the South. He gives you a hunting analogy, and now he gives you a fishing analogy. And the same one is on the other side. This other word was a fishing term and was also connected to bait. Here's what both of them mean. The purpose of the bait is to lure the prey in away from safety and towards capture and death. Both animals as well as fish are lured to traps, and they bite on hooks. Because the bait is so attractive, they don't resist in the moment. Their inner desire is so intense, here it is, they overlook the immediate danger until it's too late. That's what it looks like when we step through temptation. We are drawn out by fleshly desires. And whatever it is that is in that trap or what is on that hook is so tempting so pleasurable, so wonderfully captivating in the moments that we take the bait and we step into sin. Here's the thing. We are very clear in saying there is a tempter out there. The Bible's clear on that. The Bible calls him, satan the devil lucifer he is the accuser of the brethren it says he is the father of lies we're very clear saying there's a tempter out there but listen there's also a traitor in here and if you only focus on what's going on out here and you don't deal with the desires of the flesh it's still going to come to the point we get into temptation and we fall This is why this is so important for us to discuss. If we don't deal with the flesh, the reason the enemy keeps tempting in that way is it's not been dealt with on the inside yet. It's almost like laying out a trout line. Let's go back to this fishing analogy for a moment. You lay out a trout line. There's multiple different hooks on this line. If you go through and put multiple different types of bait on that, here's what you can find out. You can find out what the fish like based on what they bite on. Sometimes people are like, Satan has to have like unlimited knowledge because he knows exactly what it is that is my temptation. No, the issue is we live in a state of temptation and he's watching what you bite on. And when you bite, he'll keep giving it back to you and giving it back to you and giving it back to you. And the further you keep biting, the more that hook sinks in deeper and deeper and deeper. There's a temptation that he's describing. Yes, there's a tempter out there. But there's a traitor in here. It is the old sin, that sinful flesh. Now, according to verse 15, James shifts now his metaphors from hunting and fishing. And now he uses the process of childbirth in order to describe this. He shares what you could refer to as the genealogy of lustful temptation. Lust, in this one, is depicted as the mother She conceives and bears a child who is sin. And sin's ultimate destiny is death. Now, this text makes it clear sin is not just a a specific isolated act. It's not even a series of small acts. But rather, it is a process that a person goes through. So I'm going to give you these four stages. And by the way, this is not unique to me. In fact, I found these same four pieces in multiple commentaries. I could never find where it actually originated. I'm just saying it's not mine, but it's good. All right, here's the first stage. It's desire. It's in verse 14. The word lust, it refers to any kind of desire, not just sexual passion. There are normal God-given desires that are not sinful at all. They become sinful when we try to satisfy those desires outside of the will of God. That's stage number one. There is a desire for something that's on the inside. Stage two is deception. This is found in verse 14, also in verse 16. James uses two illustrations, hunting and fishing. He talks about being drawn away and enticed. Both of those use bait as a part of the process to catch the prey. Animals and fish do not deliberately step into traps, and they do not deliberately bite on empty hooks. The issue is there's something there that is attractive. That is the bait. So listen, the bait not only attracts, it distracts. It distracts people from the knowledge that giving in to temptation in that moment is going to lead to sorrow and death on the other side. The bait keeps keeps people from seeing the consequences that come from sin. So when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, if you'll remember, each time he's tempted, he came back and he answered with the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. The reason that's important is when you know your Bible, you can detect the bait and you can deal with it decisively according to the word of God. Here's stage number three, it's disobedience. If the first two stages are not detected or dealt with, that is desire as well as deception, we take the bait, we step into sin, we step into disobedience, which now leads to stage four, which is death found in verse 15. Let let me just say this. Sin never leads to life. It always leads to death. The wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It may take months, it may take years for that sin to mature, to to see the full ramifications of the death that it brings, but just rest assured sin never leads to life, it always leads to death. Sin is going to be one of those things that leads to a spiritual death, that is separation from people and God. But sin also leads to death of relationships, death of dreams, death of potential and peace, death of happiness and contentment and clarity and intimacy with God. And let's go one step further. Sin, according to the Bible, can also lead to physical death. If you'll remember from the book of Corinthians, there were believers who were taking communion in an unworthy manner And according to that, they they took it in a way that they brought judgment upon themselves. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. In other words, a number of them have passed away. John reminds us that even for believers, there is a sin leading unto death. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. And if you'll remember, once again, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, the apostle Paul spoke of turning over a believer to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Here it is. When God keeps calling and convicting and correcting his children... But his children keep resisting and running and rebelling against their God. God may choose to bring them home instead of them trampling upon his name any longer. God's grace is deep, but so is his holiness. Is there a way that, to stop the process, to recognize the deception, to see where it's leading before it's too late? yes. And obviously the earlier in the process we detect the lies and we start to resist the greater the likelihood is that we resist the temptation and avoid the sin. The converse side of that is the longer we wait, the easier it becomes and the more likely it is that we're going to sin. But James lays out our path of resistance in verses 16 through 18. Here it is, step number 1. Do not be deceived. Stop right there. All of these are going to have that same phrase. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Why do I put that there? He begins with do not be deceived, and then he starts lining up areas where we're deceived. There's a statement that I heard years and years ago. Our enemy has many tools at his disposal, but a lie is the handle that will fit every one of them. There is always a type of deception that he is going to use. Do not be deceived, think with the end in mind. Verse 16, it tells us, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. The Greek construction of that is better translated, stop being deceived. In other words, you're already there. We gotta stop this right now. Uh, Part of the deception is the, the temptation is in the allure of the bait and not seeing the consequences of where it's gonna lead. Where's the path going? Remember where this path is going to be. Desire, deception, disobedience, death. It always is going to end in death. When our eyes are on the bait and not where this is going, we will start to rationalize our lust and justify our perceived needs. In that moment, we are not thinking about the death that awaits. We are thinking that somehow the bait will satisfy. It never satisfies. Step number two, do not be deceived. If it's good and perfect, God will give it. Oh, I love this one. One of Satan's tactics is to convince us that God is holding back something good from our life. He begins to sow in these seeds of doubt, like if God really loved you, if God was really concerned, if God were truly good, If God knew how much you wanted blank, he would give you blank because God wants you to be happy. The enemy will sow that in all day long. And here's what James does. He counters it in verse 17. It says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the fathers of lights. He's challenging the enemy's lies. Here's what he's saying. If it's actually good for you at this time, God will give it to you. If God says no, it's either not good, it's not time, or it's not best. The goodness of God is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. Once we start to doubt God's goodness, we will be attracted to the enemy's offers. I don't know if you remember, but Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 15, Moses warned Israel not to forget the goodness of God When they enjoyed the pleasures of the land. Oh, we need that same warning. We are a blessed people. Don't forget the goodness of God in the context of our blessings. Stage or step three. Do not be deceived. Good is always good regardless of lighting. If you got to justify it, rationalize it, sin to get it, or hold it in the light just right to make it appear to be good, it is not from God. Verse 17 tells us every good and perfect gift. It comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The father of lights, it was an ancient Jewish title given for God, referring to him as the creator, the, the ultimate light who brought about the sun and the moon and the stars, Genesis chapter 1, 14 through 19. God is perfect. His light is perfect. There is no variation or shifting or shadows or in the presence of God. The reason that is so important is because when his character is perfect, he does does not hold back some of the consequences about a gift he's going to give you. He is not going to conceal the cost of what's coming your way. He's not going to shade the potential fallout. When it comes from God, it will be clearly in the light so that you can see it is good and it is from God. Step four, do not be deceived. The redeemed are born from above and have his nature. Another part of the enemy's tactics is to make a believer think they are unable to resist the temptation that they're dealing with. He'll make you think you alone have that temptation. He'll make you think you've been dealing with this for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. It's never going to go away. Let me tell you, one of the greatest lies ever perpetuated in an attempt to help people actually came out of 12-step programs. If you were helped in a 12-step program, I'm going to praise God for the help that you got. But let me tell you one of the greatest lies that was ever given. When you have to state for the rest of your life, here's my name and here's what defines me. My name is Paul. I'm an alcoholic. Listen, by the grace of God, my past and my sin does not define me. (laughs) By the grace of God, when I got saved... He now defines me. My nature is found in him. My presence is found in him. My my success, my freedom, my resources are found in him. So now instead of saying... I'm Paul. I'm an alcoholic. Here's what I can say. My name's Paul, and I've been saved by the grace of God. I am not where I'm going to be, but I'm definitely in a better place than what I was. Here's who I am. I am a child of God. I am righteous, and I am holy. I am a saint. I am a part of his family. You begin to name what your new identity is, not being defined by a past sin. If you think that sin is going to define you, the rest of your life, You just keep dragging that thing with you. Here's what the enemy does. He makes people think that they cannot change. Listen, if you've got the nature of Christ in you, you've got the nature of life in you, the nature of holiness in you, the nature of righteousness in you. In this text, here's what he says. He he goes in and says, God brought us forth in his will. Oh, by the way, you are where you are if you're a believer by the grace of God. He brought you forth. He redeemed you. How did he do it? He did this by the word of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He's redeemed us. He's given us a new nature. It is the nature of Christ. Therefore, we don't have to continue to succumb to temptation. Rather, we have the spirit of God indwelling us, the empowerment of God indwelling us. A nature that now resonates with his glory. But here's the thing. For the rest of your Christian journey, it's a battle for your mind. The battles for the mind be renewed by the transforming of your mind. If we don't think according to our new nature, we will live according to our past nature. Next time you're tempted, meditate on the goodness of God. If you think you need something now, all I can say is wait on the Lord. Part of the trial is developing patience in his children. Don't play with the enemy's bait. Don't try to get as close to the edge as you can get and still call yourself a Christian. Run. Run the other direction. Every time the enemy begins to speak lies, counter it with the truths of God's word. Somebody might say, Paul, I've, I've messed this thing up bad. If you only knew everything was happening in my life, you would see how this message doesn't apply to me. Listen. The grace of God and the forgiveness found in Christ can cover our sin. There's hope, always hope in Christ Here's the issue, though. There has to be the time in which we confess that sin, not blaming anyone or anything. We say, God, there is something in this sinful flesh. I confess it before you. I repent of that sin by your grace. I couldn't turn from it by myself, but you can do in and through and for me what I could never do. By your grace, I repent. I say, I don't want this to be a part of my life. And I'm gonna to submit to your spirit as you show me how. You do that. And listen, there is hope and there is forgiveness and there is grace that is found at the foot of the cross with Jesus. Take it to him. Oh, hey, run to Jesus. Run. Don't walk, don't meander. Don't skip right now. That might be weird. Just run, run, run to him. Share, this is my need. And you will find a God who is merciful and gracious that is waiting. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to bow with me for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I know I went over this morning. I I recognize that. But this is one of those topics that, oh, if God frees his people to understand how to resist and how to win this battle, it brings transformation in individual lives. It will transform marriages. It will transform families. And it will transform the local church. So I cannot encourage you enough today. Like I said in the beginning, every person deals with temptation of some kind. It's not a question of do you deal with it? We all deal with it. The question is, how do we respond? If this morning there's a piece that you're saying, God is convicting me of this, do not walk out of this room without dealing with that piece with God. Don't give the enemy another moment in your life. Bring it to him and say, God, I need you in this. It might be people today that are saying, I'd like to resist. I just don't have the power. I don't have that relationship that you're describing there. All I can tell you is if you have a desire to see how it is that Jesus can transform your life, there's gonna be pastors and pastor's wives at the front. There's gonna be counselors that want to talk with you. They will show you what that looks like. All you have to do is say, help me to know what it looks like to walk with Jesus and let them help you at that next step. You might need somebody to come by you and just pray with you today. You might be so beat up by the enemy that That you just need somebody to pray. Whatever that is, I encourage you in just a moment to respond and bring that to God. There's no question about it. You can sit in your seat and do business with God this morning. No question. But let me also say there's something beautiful about God's people working through issues together in biblical community. If you need help, if you want to come and to share those things at the altar, would you do it? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we need you, we love you. Apart from you, we can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. So Lord, we ask today that you would work in the hearts of your people as only you can. Give us the courage and the wisdom to know what the next step is. In Jesus' name, amen.